0: hello welcome back to the hp lovecraft book club um and we're still working on the letters uh the letters that uh are included in the second volume of of the selected letters which were edited and put together after lovecraft died um these these are going to kind of set the context and set Uh, kind of the milieu for when we get back to the stories right Um, so after these letters we've got a few more episodes of the letters then we'll look at supernatural horror and literature some poems then we'll jump into the stories that Lovecraft wrote in the second half of the the 1920s Um, so uh, yeah let's just jump right into into it Uh, so we actually start here with a couple letters where he's talking about uh, to friends about Almanacs, encouraging people to read old almanacs and talking about his own kind of collection and studying of old almanacs. So the first of these is to James F. Morton, dated uh, in October 1927. By the way, these letters will cover the period from 1927 to 1928 to February 1928. So October so four months of, of letters. Um, so he writes to Morton, his He's a good friend, someone who often sparred with on, on, on deep philosophical issues. This letter is a little bit more straightforward, where he talks about uh, their friend Tolman, Wilfred Blanche Tolman, who went and visited Providence for some genealogical research. But the main thing is, he said you should read uh, these almanacs. He says, they are fascinating symbols of national continuity and delicious bits of informal rule folklore. So what's kind of relevant for that to me is, I, as I talked about in, when I looked at the stories, I think Lovecraft's really, really interested in folklore and vernacular knowledge. And in the stories, it's always kind of threatening and dangerous. But here's a more uh, benign reference to those uh, traditions. And I kind of agree with him. I think this kind of source is interesting social history. And it's a, it's a good example of kind of bottom-up local uh, kind of history-making. And it's even science, right? Because a lot of the knowledge in almanacs comes from people... Uh, just sort of uh, experimenting with uh, with science, with collecting rainfall, temperatures and all that. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, he kind of carries this on in uh, a letter he writes to Walter Coates. This is October 13, 1927. The Morton letter is not dated uh, ex- except for October. So this happens sometimes. We don't really know which came first. But they're similar themes, so um, we've seen this before where Lovecraft talks to a couple people about similar topics. Um, So he's talking to Coates about how he's been collecting some some more old almanacs uh, and how he has a continuous file of these almanacs going back to 1839. And he actually wants to go all the way back to 1973, if possible. Um, And what he likes about them is they're kind of their archaism that's what he says he says these old almanacs have a quaint flavor of archaism very alluring to me Um, so he's interested in these as sources of kind of his his own his antiquarian pursuits so in addition to kind of wandering around new england going on these trips all the time he he was doing this kind of backward collection of almanacs something I, i didn't know about until i until i read these letters i didn't know he was really actively engaged in that that kind of work um so next we have a letter to clark ashton smith uh, dated october 15th 1927 uh in this letter he uh talks a little bit about how he prefers reading to writing uh we sort of already know this He, he wrote this to other people too uh more about his need for new england for intellectual kind of reasons how he how he just couldn't work in other places he wrote, in New York, my mental processes were completely atrophied for want of contact with the impressions which form their exclusive nourishment. I was an unassimilated alien there and always would be. Only the return home liberated and resuscitated, resuscitated my faculties such as they are. Now all the environmental concernments have nothing to do with the people except as vague and distinct decorative elements to be classified according to what their dress, physiognomy, and voice contribute to the general geographical impression so again we see lovecraft really having a geographical kind of foundation to his his thinking his knowledge and his philosophy and that that's uh runs throughout all of his 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 worldview and his philosophy and even his racial thinking even though he doesn't really talk directly about it here um it's, it's there's a subtext that's always there right of of this concern about immigration the concern about race mongrelism and and, and cultural diversity creeping into these geographical spaces um, but um, he does so talk about how he kind of loses something when he goes to new england and how he needs to have outside contact um, and you know intellectual companionship and he, he does admit here books aren't really enough for him right and you know so i think that's kind of an interesting conceit that he's making here where he's admitting that you know it's just you know when he was in New York he did have a pretty vibrant network like a boys club that I think gave him a lot of things that although he hated New York for so many other reasons you know maybe he well, in hindsight he could appreciate it a little bit more uh, at least that aspect of it um, so kind of an interesting letter usually this is a f- uh, usually he praises Clark Ashen Smith in his letters to him his his uh, writing or his pictures he doesn't do that so much here Um, but one of his Smith was really someone who I think inspired Lovecraft quite a lot Um, next we have a letter to Frank Belknap Long his younger contemporary right he always calls him like grandson he calls himself grandpa he always makes age jokes with him because he was I think he was like 10 years younger I mean it wasn't like Many generations, but he did sort of approach Long a bit like a, f- a father figure in a way. Um, this one's dated November nineteen twenty-seven. I'm not quite sure when in November. Um, I talked about the Worm Oral Boros uh, by Edison in the last episode. He, he had read it sometime around this time, and he was encouraging others to read it. And he does the same thing here to to Long. I think this is the follow-up to a recommendation he made. Uh, earlier and I talked about in the last episode um, you know he thinks this is a great example of heroic literature or has even this kind of heroic spirit and so for that he thinks it should be read um, he discusses a little bit about the gang the, you know this is an interesting follow up to what he was just saying to Smith about how his need he has a need for intellectual companionship and he's maybe not getting that as much in New York outside of through his letters and his correspondences um, but he, he does have some kind of fond memories of, of the gang here, to be sure, um, and other people in his, his kind of epistolatory connections and network. Um, now, what makes this letter so important, I do think this is an important letter, is he gets into a discussion of, of his own past, his own family, his own kind of view of his family, uh, and he gets there through a conversation about ancestral heraldry, Right. This is still, I think, a popular thing. When I was growing up, it was a thing you could like send in your information to like a company, and they would like send you back what your ancestral herald was. I, I don't know. It sounded all like nonsense to me. I'm sure my ancestors were all just peasants. But anyways. Um, people obviously are still interested in genealogy and their heritage. Digging into the... You know, they're, they're doing it sending in their DNA, right, for tests and all that. Um, but that, what makes this letter important is, is Lovecraft is writing about his family heritage, even its Tory heritage, right? And he re, we're reminded how much he was an Anglophile, um, how he did kind of have uh, sympathy for the Tories, as did his family did. Um, but he makes an interesting confession here after going on about the Tories and his family is there's kind of a, a, br- a difference between family legend and the reality of one's ancestry, the real lineage. And especially when you go back a certain distance in time, you, you get, you run into a lot more family mythology and just family traditions. And, uh, you know, I think I've, I've come across this in my own family where there's kind of stories that you hear. And you, when you think about them a little bit more, hard to take too seriously now in his case he's able to go back to uh to 1766 right he can't really go before you know and that's at least in america right Um, i don't know i don't have lovecraft's genealogy in front of me but uh he talks about how he can't go back before the Tudor age and and even kind of mythological uh, or family kind of vernacular uh, traditions back before the to age so there's a limit to how far back he's able to go in his research into the Phillips family or the lovecraft family for that matter he uh discusses the recent visits to new england which happened earlier in the 1927 we talked about that in the last episode uh he also talks about some of his reading material um and then he kind of jumps into a conversation about uh writing this is a very long letter by the way at least the selection we have is fairly long um, it's like t- 10 15 pages or so um he mentions some of the things he's writing and or reading i mean but then he kind of jumps into a criticism of popular writing which we've seen him make before he he doesn't think money is a very i mean that's a perfectly fine way in his view to reason to write he just doesn't think it creates art um so here's the problem with some popular writers. Quote, "Popular writers go to every extreme of credulity in swallowing tales of absolutely impossible violations of the natural order while refusing to understand the truly natural mental laws which bias the fact-perceiving and truth-telling faculties of emotionally influenced groups and individuals in every quality from time to time, which ought to be very obvious from a study not only of the history of human thought and delusion, but the perfect capacity for unfathomable delusion inherent in adroit professional ledger main and fuck your magic and sticking to this unscientific attitude they are themselves furnishing a fresh argument for the unbiased rationalist um i don't know if like i think lovecraft kind of falls into the same problem doesn't he i mean he's not immune from from transcending the rational in his in his stories I think he does that a lot. He criticizes some aspect of writing, and he kind of does it himself sometimes. Um, Now, he talks about how like, some popular writers, and I think he's thinking here of weird fiction. In particular, some fantasy settings are created, and they're interesting, but there's no focus on perception's limits. Now, this is something Lovecraft really does explore in his own writing. Um, Here, he's being a little bit more... I think honest with himself you know that he does he is pushing the boundaries of of what we can perceive um but a lot of fantasy writers he doesn't think can really do that um and he thinks the best way to get that this is a scientific foundation right so i mean for for lovecraft it comes down to the fact that like our minds our senses our experiences simply can't comprehend the world if if we're kind of beyond a certain veil um the scale of the universe the all that kind of stuff the cosmic horror element and you kind of get there through a scientific foundation Um, and then he jumps into talking about i think in an offhand way the article he was working on for houdini the one i I still don't have in front of me that article which he ghost wrote for houdini which was basically debunking psychics debunking uh, occult certain elements of occultism and he talks about the burden of proof is on the occultists which, of course, is the standard skeptical position about, um, about the occult. So, long letter, but a lot of good stuff in this letter about his own family, about literature, about his views of, of what makes good fantasy. Um, and then a little bit about his kind of ra- scientific rationalism. So, a uh, good one to, to read for some reflections on this philosophy. All right, so the next letter we have here is a big one. Um, so it's also quite long. Not quite as long as the one we just looked at, but but fairly long as well. It's all about Rome. The Dwyer letters, I think, are always really good and interesting. I, I, it's always something. Like When I take notes on these, I, I kind of highlight. I put a star next to the letters I think are really important. Pretty much all the Dwyer letters get the star because they, they really show Lovecraft thinking deeply about various issues and it's often in these Dwyer letters that he talks quite a lot of length on um, on on race on civilization on history and that and certainly does that here um, but it's all through the lens of thinking about Rome this letter is dated by the way also November 1927 Um, so he thinks Rome has a huge impact on his imagination right and especially Roman Britain right Um, but even older Roman earlier roman traditions and ideas as we know rome was always kind of the second historical home for lovecraft after the 18th century Um, he says as far back as 450 a.d my retrospective sense adheres altogether to britain but behind that point when the scene of my memory becomes roman the chain abruptly snaps so if you go back to a certain point in British history, you get to Rome, right? And remember, he does this in the story, The Rats on the Wall, right? Where they they go down into the catacombs and they literally go back in time until they get to even like Roman and pre-Roman architecture, the farther down you go. But before that, you have this kind of Anglo-Saxon tradition. And then there's some deeper tradition, which must be Roman. Uh, But what he's not doing here, and he says exactly what he's not doing here, is going back to the Teutonic and Celtic traditions because some people in, who ha, are anglophiles will do that right they'll see the roman era as an aberration as a as a break in uh, a continuous tradition of like of the celtic people and then later on the anglo-saxon migrations or whatever maybe that's certainly true of people in like scotland wales or ireland more so than in england um, maybe it's in you know that's kind of exposes maybe a little bit of his anglo-saxonism but uh, kind of a important kind of statement he makes there. Then he thinks, like, when you go back to Roman Britain, you might as well look at Rome as a whole. Uh, and he, and he, he goes then f- kind of intellectually in this kind of thought experiment, goes back to the early days of the Republic. And he really thinks Rome had artistic standards. That's one thing he liked about them. And then he talks about his dreams of ancient Rome. Right. And... Most of this letter, and this is like what makes this a really wow letter, is the vast majority of this lengthy letter is a report of a dream he had uh, of Rome, of being a Roman. Um, so, what to say about this dream? <laughs> well, basically, he's he's in the he's playing the role in the dream of uh, of a Roman soldier of the 12th Legion um, here. And he gives his own description of himself. Now, it's it's seven pages long. It's seven type pages long uh, in the in the book. So it's a, it's a significant uh, record of a dream. And he's not the only one he wrote this record of this dream too. He wrote it to other people um, as well. So he shared this dream fairly um, broadly. But this is the most detailed description of this dream that we get in in Lovecraft's letters, as far as I know and as far as I remember. I think he does mention it again. And maybe it's edited out. Uh, maybe he just copied this for others, and, and that's why it's not re- repeated. Um, but it has a lot of uh, like of Lovecraft's literary themes here, like the old books, the investigation of the old books. Uh, so again, this is all him talking about the dream he had. Quote, I now took down from the racks along the walls many books on terrible and forbidden subjects, both in Latin and in Greek, unrolling them to significant passages and showing the letter to Balbidius. The very sight of some of these books frightened me, especially a Greek text on permendate parchments titled Haryon Egyptian. And I would, I would give much for a glimpse of them now, but upon my guess, they had no effect. His mind was made up not to send the cohort and nothing could make him see the need for it. Now the dream climaxes with a battle that he takes part on, which seems to be barbarian invaders. They're, they're on horses, for instance. Um, but there's some elements of cosmic horror here as well where he writes, the rest of us scrambled on and on, up and up towards the peaks where the fire blazed and the narrow patch of sky where the mic- milky Way glimmered between the lofty and closing slopes. It was a frightful climb, fear in the darkness and the whispers and muffled curses of 300 frightened legionnaires who lurched, slipped, and stumbled, jostling one another constantly and treading incessantly on one another's toes, or even hands where the ascent was quite vertical. Then, amid the hellish pounding of distant drums, there came a very terrible sound from behind us. It was the horses we had left, just the horses, not the soldiers guarding them. It was not neighing, but screaming, the frenzied screaming of panicked beasts face to face with horrors not of this world. We all stopped, half-paralyzed in fright, and the screaming continued, and the drums pounded on, and the hilltop flamed; hilltop flames danced. Okay, so the horses weren't, weren't the, the invaders, but the horses were scared away by these, these kind of monsters. At the end, but I think it almost works as a metaphor for the fall of the Roman Empire, perhaps. I don't know. I didn't take very detailed notes on the on the dream itself because I, I just kind of made note that the dream is here if I ever want to use it. But it's kind of striking. It's stu- it's stunning. Uh, you know, this could have been reworked into a story, and and maybe it should kind of be considered almost a separate Lovecraft story. Maybe it's it's worth kind of looking at this as a story in the future. Maybe I'll do that. Um maybe i 'll just add an episode later on just on this this dream where I go through it line by line. He says this is his most vivid dream he had in a decade um, and it really kind of is built on his own fascination with the Roman Republic so good stuff again the Dwyer letters are always really good and this is this is no exception this is a good one um that 's kind of the high point of of this set of of letters i think is is that roman dream now he talks about it with some other people too um but but anyways um next three uh next we have a november 13 letter to james f morton um not much here he just talks about some criticism of his work and he kind of throws it off with uh some some humor so not a really big deal um the next one's also to morton this was written a few days later november 17th 1927 um and he says he's he he admits here he's sort of lost interest in stage work in plays um and and he criticizes crossword puzzles uh it's you know there's like a point did we look at this letter yet? No, i think it's a little bit later we'll see this where he kind of rants about cheese um (laughs) he sometimes has weird uh things that kind of just bother him and he and he writes about them in the letters um in this case it's crossword puzzles which he thinks kind of cause harm to the mind they sort of limit the language and they limit our ability to use language it's kind of funny but uh maybe not that important at the end of the day but it's it's, it's fun to see Lovecraft kind of freaking out about something kind of st- stupid when you, th- when you actually sit down and think about it he says effective language springs spontaneously from one's." in most mental life and habits of perspective and of expression it ought to be a supremely unconscious phenomenon and of course crossword puzzles can't do that right where you're trying to find the word that's been pre planned for you to search for um, so maybe there's some wisdom to it but i can't imagine crossword puzzles really causing too much harm to people um so but anyways moving on to more significant letters um Next one is November twenty fourth, nineteen twenty seven, to Donald Wandry. In this one, he documents his anti, um, sorry, not anti, after Thanksgiving Day feast dreams, um, which I guess is a real thing, right? If you eat a lot, your 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 kind of body's digesting at at night, and 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 you end up having more dreams. Um, uh, but he contrasts us with the Roman dream. So I get the sense he already kind of documented the Roman dream to to Andrei in another letter or earlier in this letter. Maybe it was cut out uh, by the editors. Uh, but so he kind of talks about that a little bit. And then he, he kind of reminds how much Rome affected his his upbringing uh, and his like historical worldview. Quote, it is absolutely impossible for me to envision the ancient world except from a Roman point of view. And I feel as fierce and natural a patriotism for the conquering republic of the Tiber in our own age as I do for the English civilization in this age. The decadence of the empire fills me with as great a melancholy as the present day of the Western world. And I'm forced into the paradox of resenting in the antique time the incursions and achievements of my own northern ancestors, whose present heritage I'm so avidly eager to see defended against all rivals. What he's saying there, obviously, is it was these northern barbarians, right, who helped Bring down the Roman Empire, and and that's part of his own uh, cultural heritage. Uh, but overall, he's got these kind of modern day lessons uh, for the decadence of the empire. He's not the only person to do this, obviously. Lots of people like to look to 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 Rome uh, for for lessons about whenever you want to study uh, civilization in decline or decadence, or, or, or especially on this time. I mean, even at the time of the making of the construction of the American Republic, there's a lot of thinking about rome right like this kind of the senate the fear of democracy all that kind of is drawn from roman tradition uh people at the time in, in the past certainly thought a lot more about Rome than i think we do now um so he he actually kind of likes the barbarians a bit because he kind of has to trace his own genealogy through them but he has ultimately this deeper and more profound passion for roman civilization as such he says psychologically i'm either a roman or an englishman with no possibility of imaginative expansion so that's that Uh, the next letter we have is to clark ashton smith debated november 27th 1927. this is the this is his history of the necronomicon Um, if you want a copy of the history of the necronomicon you get it in the Klinger anthology i think you can probably find it online too he wrote a little essay which is like a history of the necronomicon its author and all that and i believe that this is what is included in the in the clinger anthology or at least it's not very much changed from that if you wrote it later um but he gives the entire history of this and that's something i will try to talk about um maybe when we look at the stories because i think it's an important uh, document Um, to at least glance at in a little bit more detail Uh, he has a whole history for for this guy this author right Um, you know the translations all the different translations are made throughout time Um, he adds something here once a man read through the copy in the library of Miskatonic University in Arkham read it through and fled wild-eyed into the hills but that's another story end quote as far as I know he never wrote that story uh the only story I know I can think of where someone reads the Necronomicon at Miskatonic is, is it's Wilbur Watley and the Dunwich Horror, and he's not running into the field. He wants the book, right? He wants the spells in the book to complete the rituals uh, that his his father or grandfather grandfather I guess had begun. So yeah, that's it. That's your history of the Necronomicon, if you want if you want to look at that. Um, Next, we have uh, another fairly long letter to Frank Belknap Long, dated December 1927. And this one's kind of funny. It it starts with a hilarious resume. So let me read it to you. He gives up his own resume. Um, He writes, uh, Only a few stories are reproduced, but the biographical role of honor is so long as to lack all essential distinction. In furnishing my Irish colleague with an account of my vivid and active career, I did not think it necessary to mention trifles so tame as Satanism... Or neogonaphagia, nay, nor my voyage up the Oxus, or my visit to Samarkand, nor how and why I slew the yellow veiled prince at Laza, the priest whose yellow s- silken veil stood out too far in front of where his face ought to have been, and moved in a manner that I did not like. These Nungaya I passed over altogether as unworthy of a career of a man of genius. But I did hint at certain travels through the ether in the dark of the moon and give broad suggestions regarding certain queerly dimensioned cities of windowless onyx towers on a planet circling around Antares, which the initiated cannot well read without forming their own conjectures about the first handedness of my information. Um, A lot of fun, like a playful, fantastic uh, resume. Of course, one, he doesn't share. He says he, this is what he did not share when he told his, his history. Um, Then he goes into the Roman dream again, um, and he documents quite a lot of the dream using some of the same language in this other letter um, but it's more brief here and then he kind of imagines that there should be a sequel to the dream right and i think we have had this experience too if you've had a really vibrant and, and stunning and memorable dream you you maybe imagine what would it be like to have a sequel to that dream or maybe the next night you want to kind of carry on the story he wants a sequel to the dream set in spain um Then he goes into his family history a little bit now where this letter gets kind of a little bit weird is when he begins to talk about race a little bit Uh, we haven't talked too much about lovecraft's racial ideas in the last few episodes just because they haven't really come up that much in the letters but they do come up here a little bit and it comes in a conversation about genealogy he says as for my genealogical data no doubt, excessive theology, Constanguini, and Celtics, Celticity are jointly responsible for my morbidity and decadence. No, I haven't found any Jews yet, though you'll surely hear of them if I do. After admitting all these kelps, I'm willing to admit anything north of the Sahara. Did I mention the Egyptian priest Ronkos Kamas, who voyaged to the Castraderies on a Phoenician ship at the time of... Samatitas, was cast in the green shores of Quirinus, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, now, what did he, so what he said there specifically is he's found kelps in his kind of family history, and he's kind of okay with that, and he says, like, I'll even admit Jews, and, and he says, well, you know, at this point, I'll, I'll confess to anything north of the Sahara, right? So what he's not willing, here's where why it gets a little bit weird, is he's unwilling to acknowledge or accept any African, sub-Saharan African blood, black African blood, right? so then he so by north of sahara is significant because this includes egypt and north africa and uh, it allows him to do what so many western scholars do or people who study kind of world history is kind of put the put egypt in the west it's part of western history if you take a western civ course egypt is like the first chapter one of the first chapters in the book right um, which is fine. I mean, I think we all acknowledge Egypt had an impact on, on Western culture and Western tr- traditions, but it's also African, right? And it also had impacts on African civilizations and, and the Afrocentrists have made a big case that it should be included in their history. And it, it's I'm not unsympathetic with that goal, right? And of course, I think continents at the end of the day are artificial constructions, but to, to claim Egypt single-handedly as as western uh, is maybe to take credit for things that that the western civilization as a whole really doesn't shouldn't uh they claim to maybe the global approach helps we can just kind of see this all part of world history but uh there yeah um, but he still is not very open to this idea that he might not he might not be fully white i guess um then most of the rest of the letter gets into a conversation about Ambrose Bierce and some of the Ambrose Beast, beast stories he read recently, specifically The Monk and the Hangman's Daughter, um, which he... Anyways, I never read it, so I don't know uh, what's really involved in that, that tale, but he certainly is is expressing some kind of interest in it. So... So next we have a letter to August Derlith, December 1927 where he complains about literary affection, the romance, like he he wrote about this stuff to Bishop earlier. Where he says he did, why he doesn't like romance novels and romance stories. So his loss, his loss. Anyways. Uh all right. Uh, the next one is December 6, 1927 to Vincent Starrett. As far as I know, I, I this is the first, I think this is the first letter to Starrett in this anthology. Um, he was a Canadian, born American writer. Uh, what, do, what do we have about him? Wikipedia doesn't give too much to it. Um, he's kind of known for fantasy horror and he published in Weird Tales. Uh, and... Arkham House later published a collection of his short stories called *The Quick and the Dead*. Um, I actually haven't read his stories. His Most famous work is *The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes*. So, um, so this is like a letter to a colleague, um, and he talks a little bit about a supernatural horror and literature article. Um, he thinks it's bad. I mean, he he. That's the weird thing about this one is he he sort of admits the article's bad and. And I don't think it's bad. I think it's kind of fascinating. But Lovecraft is is showing some humility here about it. But at the same time, he says there's really nothing else. There's no other article that does what that article's trying to do, which is provide kind of an overall state of the field of weird fiction. Um, I, I think why he thought the article was lacking is because it needed more. And we've already seen how he's kind of struggled with the fact that, you know, he, when he started to write this, he realized how little he knew, so he had to read a lot. And he came across new writers and new stories that he hadn't read before, and he incorporated those into the article, but he always knew there was more, and, and that he mostly could only tell part of the story. Um, you know, you're not under an obligation to do that, by the way. If you're given a state of the field, you don't have to read everything. You know, I think the, I think the article stands up, but he's kind of setting too high of a standard for himself here um then he talks a little bit about Poe um obviously he loves Poe but um he says Poe I know from incredibly early times from my 10th year at the latest and I believe he had affected me more than any other writer Amontillado moved me strongly but not so much perhaps as those in which the implications were more deliciously vague and terrifyingly monstrous Usher Metzgerstein, Arthur Gordon a pin myths found in a bottle and some of the poems were the things which got me and opened up for my impressionable mind the most awesome adventures, v- adventurous vistas it had ever enjoyed. Aside from Poe, I think on Blackwood. Right, so you know nothing new there, but it's a it's a nice uh, later life reflection on on the literature he liked as a kid, and, and, the, and especially Poe. Um, next article is to Donald Wandry, uh, December nineteenth, nineteen twenty-seven. This is about his failure to get published in books. Now, some of his stuff was published in like book form. I think like the Shund House was released as like a little booklet, but you know, he's talking here about anthologies and getting, you know, his stories appear there and some did, but not many. And he says quest of Aaron was just rejected for one of these anthologies. So, um, but, uh, horror red hook, it seems was added to one, but generally, He says, my works don't really appear in those anthologies. Um, Next one, uh, December 22, 1927, to Farnsworth Wright. He's, of course, the editor at Weird Tales. Um, He talks to him about some of his future works, some of the things he's working on. Um, What does he say? But mostly he's here going on about Ambrose Bierce. Uh, he, he says, no, he says a, a, an old fellow once associated with Ambrose Bierce is having me do over a whole book full of execrable short stories published and Forgotten 25 years ago for the second edition, which he wants to float on the strength of some publicity, gaining a connection with a new Bierce death report. So there's like a moment here, I guess, you know, Bierce disappeared, right? We all know that. And, and he just sort of vanished. I think we still don't quite know what happened to him. Uh, certainly at the time, there's a lot of speculation about that. Um, but uh, he was in the news. So this idea was to benefit from this by publishing some of his stories and Lovecraft somehow involved in that thing. Um, but yeah, um, kind of just publishing stuff. Uh, and he also talks to Farnsworth Wright about how he's not, he doesn't appear much in, in, short, in, in short story anthologies and collections. But uh, he does mention the reaction to Color of Space which was published in Amazing. Um, So then we have uh, Wilfred Blanche Tallman, um, who was mentioned in an earlier letter, but we haven't seen a letter to him for a while, uh, dated December 28, 1927. Um, This one kind of goes back to this question of his own ancestry and the the Celtic versus the Teutonic heritage. And and he's already sort of confessed in the letter too long that He sort of found some Celtic heritage in his background, Um, and here's what he writes about it. As towards my attitude towards ancestral Celts, while I fancy, they're still a bit ambiguous. I like them when they're kings, yet after all mere Druid hounds can't compare in solidity and majesty with gold-beard Vikings and conquerors. I am for the Teuton in the last analysis, although, of course, a Celt or two on the loftier branches doesn't poison a whole family tree. Um... So, some kind of racial subtext there, to be sure. Um, Celtics on their own. A few Celts, if they're like from the king. Lines of kings are not going to poison a family line. So I guess that's him being generous to uh, to the non-Tutonic line. Um, it might just be coming out of the fact that he seems to have found some Celts in his family tree. Um, but then he kind of backs on this and he says well much of my ancestors imagination anyways and this he wrote in a letter we looked at earlier in this episode you know that the the line between what's real and what's just family mythology gets sort of presented as truth is pretty thin and i think that's true I, i think that's there's a lot to that um how does he say this um Yeah, he writes this. One of the tiny compartments represents the Morton shield. Kind of talking about ancestral heraldry. So the Morton shield, which of course implies descent, through the actual connection is not given on any paper. I have thus given me an actual, through infinitesimal link, with Edward John Morton, Drax Plunkett, 18th Baron, and Duns- Um But it's made up. I mean, or it's like it's, he can't prove it on paper, right? It's just, it's, it's in the imagination. Much of ancestry is imagination anyways. He even kind of traces his ancestry, t- his family history to Ambrose Bierce in a way. He says, yeah, we're all one great family, me and Art Macon and Dunsany and Ambrose Bierce. Well, show me the proof to the contrary if you don't believe it. It's, a, it's really kind of fun here where he's kind of moving away the strict historicism of ancestry and open, more open-minded to, to making it uh, imaginary. Um, I like that letter, actually. Uh, The next one is to James F. Morton again, uh, January 1928. This is just financial drama, if you're interested in his finances, you can read it. He's poor. Lovecraft didn't have money. Not much, anyways. Not in this time of his life. Okay, um, next one, January 28th to Dwyer, another important letter. It, it kind of goes back to the Roman dream, so it's like Rome again. If, if, if you want to read another long letter, relatively long letter about Rome, go to this one. Um, the key point here, though, is how he sees racial memory in dreams, and, and he starts to affiliate the dream he had with, with kind of a racial memory. Um, how does he say it um it's nature no he's talking about a sound he heard in the dream so quote they had strange features but could not have conspicuously impressed the villagers as undersized else the adult world have mentioned it nor was their language a hissing it was normal human speech and mel even tried to imitate some of it to me its nature and afflictions or affiliations were totally unknown its source as a feature of the dream must have been my memory of the fact that the Basques of the Pyrenees speak a language absolutely unclassifiable by human erudition. It was probably left by the little mongoloids, although the Basques themselves have none of their blood, just that the Finns speak a little Mongoloid language, despite an ascendancy of Aryan blood in their actual veins. The dream gave no clues as to what happened after the point where Waking removed me. So that's kind of wild, uh, him kind of thinking he's dreaming basque i don't, i don't know if you ever heard it, but you know it 's a dream anyways, but then he he springs into a conversation about the Basque and how they still practice the the evil Sabbath, which uh, kind of ties to his interest in in occult traditions as they kind of want, float around the world and he, he sees the Basque as maybe a kind of a suspicious a population of suspicious persons uh, that would be a a source of horror, and like a sequel to the horror at Red Hook, or something. Um, then we got the publication of Call of Cthulhu and Weird Tales. Um, he doesn't like it though. He says I reread it and horribly disappointed with it after a year. He's always so hard on himself. Love uh, Cthulhu is a great story. Um, okay, next we got a, a kind of a follow-up letter to Vincent Starrett dated January 10th, 1928. It's pretty long, but I'm not going to say much about it. It's, it's mostly about Martin, John Martin, a painter, who I don't know much about. So it's it's basically him showing off what he knows about this guy, John Martin. Uh, to to, to um, Now he got this, it seems, from the Encyclopedia Britannica. And so he's maybe a, he's copying a lot of what he wrote here what's here is maybe copied quite a lot from the, the the Encyclopedia Britannica. But I'll just let you dig into that if you're if you know who this John John Martin is and you want to know Lovecraft's view on him, this letter might uh help you. A little bit more in Pierce. Pierce is really on his mind at this time of, of his life. Um, next we have a uh, January 19, twenty eight, to Donald Wandry. Um this is a very short little fragment. Um, it's just about the rarity out there about sensitivity, quote we call sensitivity, sensitiveness to the fantastic. End quote. So this is just his own feeling about popular, what's popular and what's cool and what's hip. And it's never like the stuff he's into. Um, and then the final little letter here, January 31st, 1928, is just talking about the color of outer space uh, not being reprinted. Um, and he reminds us something we already know, and that was his, it was his favorite story. So, what do we have in these letters overall? Um, I think there's a lot here on ancestry, that makes these this set of letters important. And notice it's not much time was covered. So, basically October through January. Actually, I think I said February, but the last letter I, I mentioned it's January thirty first, nineteen twenty eight. So. Pretty much just three months, he wrote a lot of letters, a lot of long letters, a lot on ancestry, a lot on Rome, like Rome. This is when that Roman dream happened, and he he wrote about that with a lot of people. He's thinking a lot about Ambrose Pierce as well. He he seems to develop this connection with uh, this other writer, uh, Starrett. Um, maybe not too much professionally going on of note. He doesn't talk too much about any new stories being published but um good stuff i I think the stuff on rome the stuff on his own ancestry and his growing kind of cynicism or um about his ancestry and and kind of an uh like that line like i'll accept anything north of the sahara shows maybe he's becoming a little bit more flexible in in kind of how he views his own past right not just strictly an anglo-saxon teutonic heritage actually more complex and, and, and richer than than that so fun um i really am kind of growing to like thinking about and talking about these letters and when i first kind of said i'm going to look at these letters i thought it would just be uh, a lot of race stuff but you know and that's there but it's not nearly as bad as all that um so next episode so this will be episode eight coming up of the second volume of the selected letters um we'll look at the period from january 1928 to december 1928 so um each episode covers 20 letters so the dates are just however they line up in the in the the book um so not too many really i guess important letters important enough for the editors of the selected letters to to include them written in this year but um But yeah, we'll, we'll talk about those next time if you're reading along with me. So uh, that's going to be it for now. So let me know what you think about any of the stuff we talked about. Um, if you want to hear me do a full breakdown of the Roman dream, kind of, or, or the history of the Necronomicon, look at them as separate stories. Uh, I'll consider doing that. Let me know if you're interested. Uh, the series on the stories from this period will be we will be coming up uh, shortly in in a few episodes so we'll get back to that soon enough i'm I'm actually kind of excited to get back to some of the stories or some of my favorite um but okay uh yeah that's going to be it for now so i will we'll see you next time thanks uh, for listening